27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. This is the word of the Lord. And you may be seated. I told you it wasn't a very long passage today, but we actually have plenty to talk about in this passage. I'm very excited. So if you are new to studying God's word, um, you're not the only one here. We love the Bible. And my hope is to help us all understand the Bible a bit better as we leave today, but understand particularly how it upholds Jesus Christ as the center of our hopes. And if you are just logging on today, um, or if you're just joining us in person, again, my name is Evan Skelton, and I am one of the pastors here, and it would be a privilege to connect with you today. So if you would, send me an email or reach out to me right after service. It is a joy to have you here and want to hear a little bit more of your story. I'm going to clarify a few of our announcements again today, too. Uh, one thing we didn't get a chance to announce as well is if, for many who do uh, uh, um, know Hetty Tonsha, uh, she passed away this previous week, um, and uh, we want to uh, let you know she was just a beloved member here at our church and um, if you want to reach out to the family in this time and, per, and uh, give them encouragement to reach out and connect with them, please reach out to me. We'd be happy to connect you with the family. Um, but our condolences do go out to those who are grieving her loss. Um, also today, we do have a very significant members meeting. As John said, I just want to give one more plug. If you are a covenant member here, uh, I would encourage you, please do stick around. You're more than welcome to stay if you're not a covenant member. Um, but today, it's particularly important for those who belong to our church family by proclaiming that commitment publicly through signing a, uh, a covenant, that same covenant together by being aligned in the mission of the gospel that Christ has entrusted us by making that commitment public. Um, if, you're, if you're a covenant member here, it's particularly important for you to find out some of the key developments in this season, some, some acts of obedience God's asking of us to celebrate some things that he has been doing in our church that we're excited to, make, to let you know firsthand. And so if you would stick around after service, and we'll be eating in here in the sanctuary uh, in the, with those sack lunches. So, um, but we are, um, I want to, I mean, we're just, we're all about thanking people to, um, in our church, especially it's Thanksgiving time. I just want to thank Larry for preaching last week. Can we thank him? Larry, we're so grateful for you. Uh, he's one of our elders here. Larry and John both are, and uh, every time that Larry or John gets a chance to preach, I tell you what, I, I, I'm just moved to worship myself. Um, I was sad not to be here with you. I had the opportunity of being able to share Bayless's story with the church that gives sacrificially every month for us to be able to continue to do the work that God's asked of us. They love you, even though many, they have not met many of you face to face. And so it was my joy to share a little bit about what God's doing in, that in our church and to uh, preach um, in Isaiah chapter 9 to that body of Christ in another area of our city. Um, but we are in a season right now, a bit of a unique season as a church, um, not just Bayless Church, but several churches around the country, in which we've broken it from our normally, normal series in Mark's Gospel to consider the significance of Jesus' birth. Many refer to these weeks as the season of Advent. Now, how many of you have heard of Advent before? Anybody grew up celebrating Advent, maybe in your churches? So many of us, it's, it's a tradition that can be uh, that's not always popular today to see celebrated, but it's been celebrated in the church for about 1,500 years. Christians have devoted these four weeks for nearly a millennium and a half to do one thing, one very, very important thing together, to wait. 
It sounds very strange, especially in a microwave culture like ours, where we don't really know how to wait anymore, do we? We've got TV shows that are short enough to watch when you're in the grocery line, right? We don't know how to wait for Amazon packages. Sometimes it shows up. Do you remember what it was like to wait two weeks when you put an order online? Now, can you imagine waiting two weeks for anything? Once a, a movie comes out and it's immediately available for you on your TV, Think about all these things where we have shortened waiting, we've shortened boredom, we've removed it from our lives, but God has made us to wait. For There's something that happens, particularly when Christians wait, that makes us into fuller, more complete people. Like a child who waits for the cake to finish baking, or a woman who eagerly awaits the end of her chemo regimen, like a, a groom the night before his wedding, longing to get to that stinking honeymoon. We are made to wait. In fact, there is something about waiting that reveals things within us that we would not otherwise see in ourselves. There's something about waiting that loosens our grips from certain things and tightens them on others. There's something about waiting that whets our appetite for the very thing that we're waiting for. It makes it sweeter. But what are Christians waiting for during Advent? It's not presents, believe it or not. It's not time off from work. It's not time with the family, or for some of us, for that time with family to finally end. What we're waiting for is uh, actually found in the word of Advent itself. Advent means longing, or, I mean, sorry, not longing, coming or arrival. Specifically during Advent, Advent, Christians have set aside these weeks to remember not just one arrival, arrival of Jesus in a manger in Bethlehem, but for a second arrival, his arrival as conquering king. One as swaddled babe and one as conquering king. The first in humiliation, the second in glory. The first in condescension and the second in exaltation. The first in forgiveness and the second for judgment. Regardless, if you feel like you're in the Christmas spirit today, or even if you care at all, Christians, for Christians, this is a season saturated in rich tradition and meaning. We should love Christmas more than anyone loves Christmas, not because of Santa and elves and candy canes, but because when we hear the carols on the radio, when we see the greenery hung on the stage or on, um, around the grocery store, or we dress our homes in lights, or we share good food, what we are doing is we are hearing the whispers of generations of Christians who have come before us who wanted to keep the sweetness of Jesus' arrival on their lips. They wanted to keep the brilliance of their king in front of their eyes. They wanted to together, even if it's just once a year, rehearse their anticipation, their longing, their waiting for the coming of their king, crying out with one another, come now, even now, Lord Jesus. That's what we're doing in Advent. Advent, in many ways, is just as sweet as Christmas itself. And so I encourage you to slow down the season, to practice the waiting. But the, uh, now, traditionally, each week of Advent, again, as I mentioned at the beginning of our service, is set apart to remember a particular gift that was promised and fulfilled in Jesus. Now, first was... Anybody paying attention last week? What was it? What was Larry preaching on? Hope, right? So hope. Hope was the first uh, of the gifts that came through Jesus. It was the first candle that we lit. Um, Now, second, this week we're talking about peace. And in the next two weeks, we'll be talking about joy followed by love. 
four gifts that have come through Christ that the Bible really emphasizes over and over again. For the next three weeks, though, we are going to be looking in the same section of Scripture, which comes not at the beginning of Jesus' life, but at its conclusion, or at least his conclusion prior to the resurrection. Specifically, we're going to be looking at the passage um, in the Gospel according to John, John 14 through 16, selections from these three chapters, which take place during Jesus' famous Last Supper with his disciples. This is the Last Supper he would enjoy with them before going to the Roman cross to die. Now, I realize it's not the most Christmassy passage that you might be thinking of. There's no wise men, there's no manger scene, there's no angels or fruitcakes. This passage is not, uh, John 14 16 through 16, in many ways, I think, though, explains Christmas for us. Jesus, I think, explains Christmas for us here. The significance, specifically, of why he came. Why, what he understood the significance of his coming to be. And so if you're, even if you're not a believer, it's a particularly important passage because you're going to hear from the Bible what Christians understand, how Christians understand Jesus understood himself. And the peace, joy, and love which all of us are longing for, which are bound up with him. We're going to be looking, as I mentioned, at peace this week, and I hope you're ready to get to work. We're going to be in just this one verse, John 14, 27. Keep your Bibles open, if you would. It's going to be particularly important for you to say, again, this is what the Bible says, not just particularly what Evan thinks. And I hope, again, you will, if you uh, don't have a Bible, take that Bible as our gift to you. Study it. Read it. Make sense of it throughout the week. But we're going to unpack this short but immensely significant verse in four parts. The first part is uh, the promise of peace, then the problem of peace, the price of peace, and the prince of peace. Let's start with the first, the promise of peace. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Have you heard his name before? He's a very famous poet, one of the most famous American poets, perhaps one of the very first American celebrities. In fact, on his 70th birthday, they threw basically a national holiday for the impact he had already had on the country. He shaped America's early character and legacy, and he uh, wrote the uh, night, uh, what's the word, uh, what's the poem about Paul Revere, regardless. My history uh, teacher would not, have, would not be happy with me right now. But nonetheless, um, the, he uh, um, also wrote a carol, which is very famous to hear on the radio this time of year, called I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Have you heard this song before? It's one of my favorites. Always has been for quite some time. I just want to read the first lyrics. Uh, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols pro- play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Now what we may not realize is that for Longfellow, he actually knew very little peace in his life. His first wife, Mary, died from a miscarriage. He also suffered from chronic pain, Then his second wife, Frances, died after sustaining burns when her dress caught fire. Henry, waking from a nap, tried to put put the fire out unsuccessfully. She died the next morning, but he was so scarred, so burned, he couldn't even attend his wife's funeral. And eventually he had to grow a beard from that point on in life because his face was so scarred. Less than two years later, after losing his precious wife, which really changed him, In 1863, his son Charles 
came home severely wounded from the American Civil War. A war that his parents had not given him permission to enlist in. You can imagine, after losing his wife, how protective he was of his son. And his son, nonetheless, signed up for, for battle, only to be now fighting for his own life in his father's arms. Can you imagine what it would have been like for Henry Longfellow? To hold his son. In a time, particularly around Christmas, he wrote this poem. And the Christmas season and the Christmas spirit seemed to mock him. Listen to these words from the same poem, which we don't often hear sung, about actually the Civil War, the most brutal war I think Americans have ever experienced. Then, from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Christmas isn't always that time of year when the world falls in love. Instead, for many, and perhaps many in this room, Christmas songs are drowned out by notes of sorrow and loss. In many ways, our longings for peace come out most during Christmas, I think particularly in a year like this. And these longings come out in, I think, three ways. The first, we hunger for a sense of personal peace, don't we? An end to our anxiety and our end to our bitterness our end perhaps to our depression. We also think of a hunger for peace in our closest relationships, aware this year, this time of year, perhaps more than others, of the reoccurring fights, of the growing distance we feel, of the people we aren't sure we can ever forgive. This hunger can grow even larger, especially in a year filled with political conflict, with racial tensions and ugly injustice, not just between politicians and governments, but between neighbors. We can wonder if there's something seriously wrong with the world. And yet here, Jesus promises peace. Peace I leave with you, he says. My peace I give to you. Now when we think of peace, what do we think of? If I was to ask you to find it, we, we largely, we, we reduce peace, we think of peace almost as just an absence of conflict, don't we? An absence of anxiety and having an untroubled mind, maybe having relationships where they just aren't fighting all the time. That's how we think of peace. Now, peace certainly includes these things, but peace in the Bible is so much bigger, friends. The word here used of peace, or the word uh, that it's referring to, particularly in the Old Testament, even though it's written in Greek here, refers back to a very ancient and very important concept, the concept of shalom. You may have heard this phrase. It's funny that you, it's a, religious people often, it's just become a trendy phrase for many of them. They'll sign their emails, shalom, okay, shalom. Well, I want to explain a little bit what shalom is. It's a word that means something like uh, being whole, being complete, being undivided, Describing a life in which every kind of relationship that you have works. A life when, where everything is as it should be. David Gillette, a commentator, puts it this way. If you have shalom, you have everything. Now the Bible 
is very honest, friends, about the crisis our lives are always in. A.W. Tozer, a very famous theologian, describes earth on this side of the fall, on this side of brokenness, as uh, being a disaster area, and its inhabitants live in a state of extraordinary emergency. The Bible doesn't ask us to pretend any differently. Our lives are in kind of one crisis after another. Life is hard and then you die, friends. Um, but there's more hope than that. But nonetheless, like, we, we have to be honest about our lives as they are. It's no wonder we limit then the idea of peace to being something like the ending of a crisis, the ending of conflict. But the Bible asks us to imagine a world so much bigger than that, a life that works, a life where everyone is treated with dignity, a life where all is well. You know that phrase, all is well. You've heard that phrase perhaps used, and we use it pretty uh, tritely, don't we? Uh, you think about uh, how, how are things? Oh, all's well. But would you really describe your life that way? What about your relationships? Is your marriage in crisis? Your work right now? The headlines? Would you really describe your life as, well, all is well? The Bible asks us to imagine, though, a world where it could be. A world of shalom. Something we also need to point out, though, is shalom, importantly, is bound up with God. The reason our relationships don't work is because that relationship with God does not work. A wall, according to the Bible, has been built up between us and God. Unless that wall can be torn down, walls of hostility will continue to be built brick by brick between one another. We will only experience a lack of peace unless peace can be regained with God himself. Pick your crisis. Pick your injustice. Pick your addiction. Where does that come from? What kind of impulses drive the behaviors and the desires behind these? John Piper points out, what drives these crises? A heart devoid of this kind of peace. Because we lack this peace. We contribute to a lack of peace everywhere else. But then if you have this kind of peace, if you and God are at peace, if you and God don't just tolerate one another and you, you, uh, you check in with him every week or maybe once every six months, but if you have a, rela a relationship with God of open affection and trust, of commitment, of authentic love, then every other relationship, it turns out, is going to begin to feel the ground shake around them. The world around you begins to change. Relationships will not look the same. We need this kind of peace if we're going to have a world of peace, starting with a peace with God, but how in the world could that kind of world take place? This leads to our second point, the problem of peace. Since I've already quoted one, let me quote another Christmas song, which is also just real deep. Here comes Santa Claus. Here comes Santa Claus. Right down Santa Claus Lane. He'll come around when the chimes ring out. It's Christmas time again. Peace on earth will come to all if we just follow the light. So let's give thanks to the Lord above, because Santa Claus is coming tonight. I hope this doesn't step on too many toes here. After all, many of the kids are back in Bayless Kids, but our family doesn't really pretend about Santa Claus. I think part of the reason is because when we talk about Jesus, someone who we can't see, we don't want Jesus to end up in the same category. 
We don't want him to end up a children's story. We believed in when, until we grew up and knew better. We want to be clear on what is true and what is just a fairy tale. But that's just our personal conviction. If you disagree with me, that's okay. But I think one of the reasons, many ways, we fight to keep uh, Santa Claus alive in our hearts and our culture is because peace feels a bit like fiction to us as well. Maybe if we just believe enough in peace, if we just sing enough about it, we, like Santa Claus, it might finally be true. Blowing on embers of hope we fear may have gone out long ago, suffering, stuffing our faces with what, with what sounds like peace, which tastes like peace, only to have a sugar high crash on the 26th. A peace we sing about that breaks apart the day after like cheap plastic. Now hear me out, I think the world in some way can give us peace. We look to police officers, after all, to protect the peace of our cities. We build up retirement accounts to build, to preserve our financial peace. Social safety nets intend to protect peace for the poor and the vulnerable. Parents everywhere look to Disney Plus to give them a few moments of peace with their children. The world can give us a sense of peace, some peace. Just like in the first century world, which knew some rather unique peace under the Roman Empire, the time in which these words would have been first spoken by Jesus. In fact, during the days of Jesus, it was a time known to the ancient world as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And for nearly two centuries, nearly 70 million people knew peace, or at least a form of it. The Roman Empire had quelled, you see, most military conflicts and kept its empire under its control relatively quiet and calm. The world was seemed, in many ways, largely stable. And yet even in the first century, the peace that Rome gave, like the peace our world gives, came up wanting. For at least three reasons, I think. The first is the world's peace isn't a lasting peace. Can you think of the last time your life felt at peace? Maybe your marriage was doing great. But then she sided with her mom again. Or he found out about his porn. Or the sex just stopped all over again. Still others of you, you were alright being single, but then another one of your friends gets engaged. Another relative asked you when you were going to settle down, and that apartment starts to feel really empty. You finally had a couple dollars to, roll to, to rub together, but then that bill came, or you lost your job, or you blew it on gambling again as much as you didn't want to. Maybe you had months of good news from a doctor, but then all of that is ended with the words, the cancer is back. Or just think of how many around the world long for an end to the government that is over them, long for new leadership, an end to the corruption and violence. But just as that regime is toppled, another dictator takes their place and is even worse. The garden variety piece we know is circumstantially dependent, friends. It's dependent on our circumstances, and we know how quickly those can change. It takes very little, then, to rob us of that kind of peace. The kind of peace we had in one moment it slips through our fingers just as we realize the world's peace isn't a lasting peace. Second, the world's peace isn't everyone's peace. The fact is, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, was secured through massive bloodshed. The Romans didn't just conquer most of the known world with a wink and a smile. They were ruthless warriors and ruled their subjects with an iron hand. 
Ask the average Israelite, and they would tell you that this peace isn't their peace, a world which, in which the strong took what they wanted, strung up anyone who stood in their way, and this peace was for their occupiers and oppressors. It wasn't for them. Why else would they have longed so dearly for a Messiah, a conquering king who is stronger than Rome? Why else would the disciples have asked Jesus when he would finally take up the sword against them? Even today, I think, in fact, especially today, we are convinced that if I'm going to have peace, you stand in the way of it. And I'm going to have to take it myself. If I am going to win, you can't. And there are, there are two categories we, we speak of in today. There are the oppressed and then there are the oppressors. And it's time for the oppressed to have their turn calling the shots. And so we, want, we talk more and more about revolution, about massive upheaval, about burning the old world down. Now Christians should be the first to admit the real brokenness of the world, to stand on the behalf of the marginalized, to fight for real justice, to, for the truth to come to light, for image bearers to be treated as image bearers, regardless of age or stage, regardless of birth status or birthplace, regardless of status or skin color. Certainly, we want better people in positions of power. We want better laws. We want better policies. Christians aren't called to be uninvolved. They're called to call out injustice and racism. They're called to call out every form of evil that is outside of God's will. It's one of the, their duties in being unimpressed with the society around them. They belong to one kingdom, and Christians need to be very clear to what kingdom that is they belong to. But do we really expect that the next regime will bring the peace that we need? Do we really think that if we were in power, more importantly, do we really think that we are so incorruptible that we would not become the new oppressors ourselves? The world's peace isn't everyone's peace. And see, the world's peace isn't real peace. It, you see, the world's peace only deals with the surface. The enforcements, the laws, the policies, all of it, the health insurance plans, they, they only protect circumstances. They may change circumstances for you or keep circumstances from spiraling reasonably out of your control, at least for some. Again, not everyone. It may change our outlook on life. It may play on our common longings for a better world, a world that works, but eventually that peace will break down and along the way it breaks us up. Because ultimately, that kind of peace cannot change the heart. And if really the heart is where our lack of peace originates from, if it's really that source of angst, of the kind of desires and impulses which keep the world on fire, then the world's peace isn't real peace at all. It's Santa Claus peace. And yet, hear Jesus' words here. My peace, the peace I give, is not that kind of peace. Not the peace the world can give, which isn't lasting, which isn't satisfying, which only works out for the powerful. My peace isn't the kind of peace a government or a lottery win or a marriage conference can bring. My peace is shalom. But to understand this promise, we need to understand the price of peace. Luke 2, and we're finally getting to a Christmas text here, okay? So we find a passage, a very famous passage to hear at Christmas time, in which the shepherds who have been drifting off to sleep, are now scared out of their blooming minds before a split sky and what the passage calls a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. Have you ever tried to mess with the radio in your car? 
um, and uh, it's not clicking on, um, but all of a sudden you realize there was a button you didn't push, and then it comes blasting out of the speakers and you nearly have a heart attack and swerve along the road. This has happened to me, okay? So, or some, yeah, this is this, uh, where the, it blows your socks off. Now, this is, this is what we should think of as happening this night. You know, th- this, uh, these shepherds um, are on silent hills with just their bleeding sheep, perhaps drifting off to sleep. Then a blasting chorus, thousands upon thousands of angels are bursting with good news, it says, saying, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, what? Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Notice here, though, what kind of peace is it that the angels are singing about? A peace between God and human beings. A peace which ripples outward and changes the world. A peace which makes God pleased with the very ones who have tried to find their peace everywhere else. This is what has come in Jesus. When the angel announced his arrival, he is bound up with peace. And it is the peace that Jesus now offers his disciples in John 14. A peace which will not end. A peace which will bring joy to the world. A peace that is real, alive, both in the hearts and nations. But looking back at John 14, again, what's the timing here? When does he announce this peace? Jesus is hours away from his crucifixion. An event not only was he not surprised by, It was an event he knows that's going to bring the absolute worst out of his disciples, his closest friends, who when his trial would come, they would run from him, and then they would afterwards fall into deep shame and despair, feeling they've lost everything and they had abandoned their king. And yet Jesus, knowing all of this, offers them peace. Your hearts, he says, in a sense, are about to be really troubled Fear, more than you have ever known in your entire life, is about to overwhelm you. But it will not have the final say. I am not just offering you peace, I am demanding your peace. I am, in fact, bringing your peace. Jesus offers peace to the very ones who have and will see the very worst in themselves. And he does so knowing what it will cost him. He knows the price. The price of our peace is his own death. It is only as everything where we needed peace, every relationship turns on Jesus, the government, his friends, his own flesh, even God himself. It is only as Jesus is robbed of peace that God might finally bring peace in full. You see, only Jesus' death can deal with the root problem, that is, the problem with our peace. Only Jesus' death can restore our peace with God, our fundamental problem, and then begin to create peace everywhere as it intends, to remake the world. And it is no coincidence, in fact, afterwards, that Jesus, when he rises from the dead, you know what his common greeting is, as he appears to those who are freaking out because he appears in their midst, because he's alive once again. What does he say to them? Peace. Peace be with you. After all, because of his death on their behalf, on our behalf, peace is with them. Jesus is the peace of the world. Peace is with us. And the kind of peace that is already 
having its way with the world, and, and one day soon will have its entire way with the world. Isaiah 9 speaks of the kind of rescuer that God would send, the kind of rescuer, the Messiah, that we are waiting for, and that the Israelites were waiting for when Jesus was born. Verse 7, we read at the beginning of our service, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Friends, peace does not just come by believing the best about ourselves any more than it comes by having Christmas spirit. It comes by being honest about the worst in ourselves, of despairing of ourselves in a sense, a despairing of our best attempts at creating our own peace. Peace only comes as we look outside of ourselves for it. Whether you consider yourself a Christian or not, where are you looking for peace right now? The world can offer a form of it, we should be grateful for it. We should be grateful for military and law enforcement, for social security, for, sorry, for, for social security, for security systems, for health insurance. But do you have a peace, do you have the kind of peace that lasts in bad circumstances, in no job, in no money, in more chemo, in worse outlooks? Do you have peace in the face of death? Do you have peace when police breakdown in legal battles or under government corruption. This is the peace that Jesus offers, and he has paid its price. But now let's look at, number four, who this is, the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9, which we just read before, just before verse 7, calls the Messiah, calls Jesus by a particularly important title, the Prince of Peace. See, Jesus does not just bring peace to us. He is the prince of peace. Here's what this means. It's not just reiterating that he is the greatest one of peace. This is, it's, it's that Jesus is a, a one who stands to inherit a throne, a prince. He's a royal figure who rules, and under his rule is the experience of peace. You want to experience peace? It is in submitting to him as the king that he is. Those who experience peace aren't those who get to call their own shots in their lives. It's those who have submitted themselves, body and soul, goals and ambitions, past, present, and future, to a new king, the Prince of Peace. At one level, those people who have done so, they will know a kind of peace more true and enduring than anyone else, even when their circumstances change, even when anxiety is breathing at the back of their neck through prayer, through meditation upon what is true in the gospel, and the enduring comfort of the Spirit of God, which is what is the rest of this passage is about in John 14, a peace, Philippians tells us, which passes all understanding, guards their hearts and minds. With Jesus, those who are bound up with him by faith in his resurrection, who have seen the worst in themselves and to come him for rescue, who have abandoned their attempts to hold on to their own peace to seek the one who has real enduring peace for them. Those kind of people are able to preach to their own hearts, even when their emotions are slow to wake up to it. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. After all, look at verse 1 in this chapter. Jesus begins this whole part of his speech with the similar words. Let not your hearts be troubled, as if he cares about us hearing this. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Why? Believe in God. Believe also in me. The reason Christians can preach at their anxiety until it quiets down is because their trust is not in their circumstances, but in Christ. But a subjective sense of peace, believe it or not, is not the greatest effect of this peace in our lives. 
the Bible doesn't give as much attention to the effect of peace upon our emotional lives, which I realize is what most of us desire, as much as it gives effects to, it speaks of the, uh, the effects that peace has on our behavior. The Prince of Peace now calls those who know his peace, peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, he refers to them. The one who has made our peace now calls those who have peace to make peace as well, to live lives which show off what it means to serve a different king and belong to a different kingdom, which I think happens in at least three ways. First, in our church. Colossians 3.15 says to Christians, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. But it doesn't stop there. It says, to which you were indeed called in one body and be thankful. In other words, words, this is what it means. The peace of God, which is in Christ, is first and foremost shown in our commitment to brothers and sisters in the church. If you are a Christian, it's your love is shown off to be real, really real, in your commitment to members of this family, especially when it's difficult. To know peace is to give, to make peace with those who also know this peace in this family. Which means that the church should be a place where gossip dies and forgiveness is common. Where shame is foreign and grace is overwhelming where bitterness is finally released and love is held tight. The church, as one body, is to be ruled by peace, overwhelmed by the peace that even the worst of us have found in him. That includes me. The second place is by our hands. Peacemaking isn't a passive task. It's an active one. And peacemakers, this means they begin to see the world around them differently. Their imagination has expanded. They begin to imagine what God's peace, the peace that will finally have its way in the world, what it might look like in their workplace, what it might look like in their government, what it might look like in their cities, what it might look like in their families, what it might look like among their neighbors. And they seek to give their lives to seeking that kind of peace until it comes in Jesus driving signposts into the ground of where that final peace is found, of living a kind of life that catches the attention of the watching world, wondering where is that kind of peace actually found? What is this hinting at? The longings that, of the world that we want to give ourselves to, that longings of a world that is coming where the Prince of Peace gets his way. Throughout the centuries, in fact, it is fascinating how the peace which Christians found in Christ transformed not just their personal lives, or their processing of anxiety, but even the society around them. D.A. Carson lists several examples. Prison reform, medical care, trade unions, control of a perverted and perverting liquor trade, abolition of slavery, abolition of child labor, establishment of orphanages, reform of the penal code. In all these areas, the followers of Jesus spearheaded the drive for righteousness. In fact, many of the social safety nets or the, so, the priorities of our culture, the things that exist right now, you even think the modern day institution of hospitals, you know where many of these came from? They came from Christians seeking to act as Christians who cared about the world that they were in, who saw that it was their job now to live as peacemakers. Christians make peace in their church and with their hands, but also with our tongues. Isaiah 52.7 tells us, 
how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Notice this, who publishes what? Peace. Who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, saying to Zion, who says to Zion, your God reigns. This verse is quoted in the New Testament as referring to evangelism, as referring to making sense of the gospel with our mouths, connecting the dots for someone. Now, it's hindered when we don't live a life where there's no dots to connect, but nonetheless, it's going to require all of us to connect those dots. How is it that Christians make sense of peace, of lasting, universal, real peace, by explaining the good news of the gospel to real people? seeking understanding, not just vomiting out the gospel, but teaching it with the aim to persuade. And friends, there are so many around you, whether you recognize it or not, who need this good news, who God has placed you nearby, in your families, in your neighborhoods. He has sovereignly put you next to you to say, let me tell you of what the Lord has done for me. The peace that that you're longing for is found in him. This is what God has saved us for, is now to make us useful as peacemakers who preach the good news of peace. Your God reigns. There are those who need this kind of peace, a peace that doesn't feel plastic and fake, a kind of peace they can build their lives upon. But only those who know this peace firsthand can announce it. Only those who have peace made for them can make known that peace to others. If you've not, if you don't know this peace firsthand from Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to turn it in in faith. Wake up to the reality of that the gospel really does reveal the worst about ourselves, but it's on the way to hope. The gospel shows us ourselves very clearly. All of our most desperate attempts to keep our lives under our control and how they've always failed us. And to turn to him, finally, for the peace that we're longing for. A kind of peace that's enduring, that lasts even in the midst of our circumstances, even when our emotions are slow to wake up to it. A peace we know is as real as what's in front of me, what I can taste and touch right here. It's as if it's, as if it's already mine because it will come soon, secured by Christ's cross and resurrection. Rest in the Prince of Peace through faith. Now is perhaps the best time for you to do so. If you are a Christian, let me ask, does your life show off this rest? Do people, what do they experience from you? Do they experience someone who's at peace? Who's making peace in their relationships? Do you know this Prince and his peace? Longfellow did. Which is why in the face of death and even loss, even in the face of a worsening war, he did not leave us merely with his honest sorrows in this song. Instead, he answered back to his own despair. You can hear him almost preaching at himself in this poem with words I think we need to hear. Words that are more satisfying than the peace the world offers. Words which can only be true and full of hope through Christ. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. Lord, we are those who are so desperate for peace. We know so little of it. And we speak as those who are in a nation where we have particular peace that many around this world do not. We're grateful, Lord, for the peace that you have sovereignly and graciously allowed us we don't have to fear for our lives and we can worship freely in this place we thank you for a government which is in many ways more likely to reveal corruption than to keep it in secret we thank you lord for 
all the institutions, the gifts that you have given us that create a sense of peace in our lives that we did not deserve or earn. We're doing so humbled, knowing that there is around the world that those who, those who aren't guaranteed the same things. And yet, we don't want to cling too tightly to this world and, ta- and to be too deadened to it. To not realize our, our lives are really in crisis. And so we need you to pull the, p- the curtain back to show us not only the crisis in our lives and help us to be honest with you about it. After all, you already see it. But to see that the crisis reveals an even deeper, deeper crisis of heart. And we need you. And we are not close to you. The only means by which we can have peace is by what the angels announced, Lord. Bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Peace of God with men. Lord, would you help us to wake up to that peace, either by putting our faith in the Prince of Peace for the very first time and the price he paid for it, or for the thousandth time that we might become peacemakers, living as those who are unimpressed with the promises of the world and the peace that it it offers to give us, we know is a lot lasting. But living as those with joy, with hope set on the horizon, giving as many signposts as we can of where that peace is found and to stewarding our words and relationships, looking for another one to explain it to. Lord, we know that the motive, power, and means for all these things comes in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we pray for Jesus' sake, the peacemaker. Amen.